The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. Today coming from the Voice of the Listener and Viewers 30th Anniversary Conference at the Royal Geological Society in London. And, as befits the occasion, a stellar lineup has been arranged, including Director General of the BBC, Tony Hall, and Arts Council Chairman, Peter Bazalgette. On the topics for discussion, it's no surprise of the future of the BBC, where the cuts are coming from, and whether, if Alex Salmon gets his way, the BBC in Scotland becomes the SBC. Plus, away from Piccadilly, the director of The World's End, Shaun of the Dead and Spaced, Edgar Wright, tells us about his plans to return to TV and the deteriorating state of comedy on the small screen. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. Here at the VLV, Lord Hall appeared, well, slightly late to be honest, to talk to the voice of the listener and viewer as it celebrates 30 years of campaigning for high-quality radio and TV. His opening gambit was a defence of the BBC that described a broadcaster that wasn't nearly as big as its rivals like to think. 20 years ago, the BBC received nearly 40%, 40% of all the revenues uh, in broadcasting in this country. The figure today is 25%, around a quarter, a much smaller part of the media market. 20 years ago, we were the largest broadcasting organisation in this country, Now, quite simply, we are not. 20 years ago, the licence fee in today's money was just over £147 a year. Now it's £145.50, a bit lower. But look at what you get. 20 years ago, we had two TV stations, five national radio stations, and local and nations radio. Now we deliver so much more. Four times more television channels, twice as many national radio stations, impressive web uh, services and the iPlayer. That's what I mean by greater value. That story needs to be told. My name is Sandra Horn. I have recently joined this organisation. I used to work for Tony Hall. I think he's a good appointment for the BBC and I think he'll do very well. Uh, my name's Jasmine Chandler. I work for the Commonwealth Broadcasting Association. What I came across is a lot of talk about partnerships working with the museums, working with the opera house, working with Royal Shakespeare. So that, I think that's coming across a lot. The BBC is looking to work more in partnership in the community. I'm Hannah Vincent. I'm a project manager for Youth Media Agency. Our predominant goal is aiming at engaging young people with media. So personally, it would have been nice to get more of a response on how they're going to be interacting with a lot of user-based media that's being created at the moment. Um, but other than that, it was good to get a bit more insight, find out some facts and figures. He did well. My name's Tim Gopsell from the Campaign for Press and Broadcasting Freedom. Uh, we all know what the difficult questions are, which are the ones that are coming up over the licence fee. The future of the size of the BBC, its share of the market, its income and so on. I think that the people in the audience wanted to hear that the BBC is going to put up a really good fight. I think they feel that that Tony Hall is an improvement for the BBC and it's likelihood to do that. But I think they might like to have heard it expressed. I think that you had to read between the lines a bit. 
Well, they were just some of the delegates here at the VOV conference giving their views on Tony Hall's speech. I'm Steve Barnett. I'm Professor of Communications at the University of Westminster and I was asked to do a 30-year, a retrospective of VLV's 30 years. The one that um, certainly its founder, Jocelyn Hay, is most proud of was when the uh, transmitter system was being sold off and the government was wanting to take the money for itself. After threat of judicial review from VLV, it agreed that the BBC could keep the £200 million from the sale. So that is one very tangible victory, if you like. I think the other one that VLV can take part credit for, not entirely, but it's part of a very major campaign, was to ensure that in the 2003 Communications Act, the responsibility for Ofcom was not just to promote the interests of consumers, but also to promote the interests of citizens. And an awful lot of what Ofcom does and has done in the last 10 years flows from that statutory duty, which would not have happened without the help of VLV, Public Voice and, uh, and, and other organisations standing up for the public interest. I think it, it's certainly relevant in terms of maintaining a voice for the general public. There's certainly been, it's absolutely true to say there's been a revolution in social media. And yet, underneath that, if you look at the figures, both bog-standard TV and radio audience figures are astonishingly robust. Some of the platforms are shifting, but in terms of the arguments around investment in original content, around universality, around free at the point of, of viewing or listening, there are still very relevant and very big arguments to be had around the public interest. I think Jocelyn Hayes' character is best summed up by a question at the very end um, when someone said she never gives up. And it doesn't matter whether she's faced with rudeness or ignorance or obstinacy or blind stupidity. She will explain, she will put forward her arguments, she will carry on putting them forward and carry on knocking on people's doors until she gets heard. And I think that has been very much at the heart of what VLV has been about. I'm with Ray Snoddy, a journalist and media commentator. Ray, one of the things that came out of Tony's speech was this idea that he's going to be less British about bigging up the BBC and going to be more aggressive in using the BBC's own airwaves to, to tell listeners and, uh, and viewers what they get for their money. What did you make of that? Well, I think they're already pretty aggressive in, in using the airwaves to promote their programmes. But I do think absolutely that the BBC may, over the next few years have to fight fairly hard to defend its corner. I think in some sections of the Conservative Party there is emerging a theory, unfortunately, which seems to be backed by David Dimbleby and former BBC executive Roger Mosey, that somehow a smaller BBC would be a good idea. Smaller than what? The BBC is already smaller in the sense that 700 million has been taken out of its budget, 2,000 jobs going, and much more important, the BBC is becoming relatively smaller all the time as subscription television and Sky gets bigger, as companies like BT come into the market. So the case should not go by default that actually the BBC provides what a very large number of viewer and listeners want, and politicians should be told that message, and if the BBC does it, that's not a bad idea. Tony Hall made his flagship speech in, uh, in October, but it really felt like today he was really setting out his stool for, for charter renewal, almost like sort of find the starting gun, and we're going to get a lot more of this in the sense he was saying, we don't hurt ITV and commercial broadcasters, we actually help them, we're, we're almost partly responsible for Dan's Abbey, he said. Yeah, well, that's just a little bit uh, far-fetched. But uh, I think Tony Hall is still talking in nice generalities and platitudes. 
everything he says is nice and I admire, but what he has not got yet is the detail of what he's doing. He warned today of the sort of hard choices that will have to be made. Now those hard choices will involve people losing their jobs, programs and possibly even channels dropped. And, and then maybe the public will start to realise the importance of the choices that they face over the next five years. He was asked about the future of BBC Three and BBC Four. He, he was non-committal, and he said, "Well, you know, I haven't, I haven't done those sums yet." But he said, "Just look at Six Music. It's not easy to act anything." Well, I'm, I will keep on saying that BBC Four is the best thing the BBC does. Now, maybe some of the other things should be better, so that I wouldn't have to say that. But, but if they come for BBC Four, I will be out demonstrating in the streets with all the rest of them. One other story about the BBC has been doing the rounds this week, that of what will happen to the corporation should Scotland vote to leave the union. Alex Salmon's paper, all 150 pages of it, included the nugget that BBC Scotland and all its staff should be handed over to the new government and renamed the Scottish Broadcasting Company. Tony Hall explained his position on this during the question and answer session with former World Tonight presenter Robin Lustig. What we're not doing is talking about what happens after the, after the referendum for, for one very clear reason which I, I believe in which is um, our journalists job are to report impartially on the Scottish referendum debate within Scotland and without i.e. to the whole of the UK and I don't want them to be uh, part of an organisation that is somehow it, it also uh, you know, we have a position about independence work we can't do that, we simply can't do that and I don't think it's an organisation but it, it's, it's dangerous also and unique but I really think we are the most in, in, important job we've got is to do what we were doing yesterday and again this morning, which is explaining to people within Scotland what these issues are uh, around uh, independence or staying within the UK. Equally important, because I think it's a UK problem, making sure the whole of the UK understands uh, what's on the line here, um, uh, you know, particularly in England. Um, uh, which I think is, is but somebody important. in your office or elsewhere in the organisation must either have written or be writing a paper of the implications for the BBC of an independent Scotland. No, and we're not doing that, and that's, uh, I've thought this through, and uh, I, I don't want to go there, because as soon as you start writing stuff down and thinking about it, people will say, well, in a spirit of openness, tell us what you're thinking. And to be honest with you, I just don't want to go down that route. So I'm joined by Torin Douglas, the BBC's former media correspondent. Torin, lots of uh, different issues and, and topics explored today, but all of them seem to sort of feed back into one topic, which was the BBC and Charter Renewal. Yes, I mean, the arguments have already started. Um, we've heard from uh, David Dimbleby, we've heard from Roger Mosey, former BBC executive, all raising this issue that perhaps the BBC should be a bit smaller, perhaps should consider getting rid of a couple of its, uh, of its TV channels. And that was uh, certainly opposed by the people here at Voice of Listener and Viewer, but it will certainly be a, a debate that's going to be had um, over many months. Interesting that Steve Morrison, from uh, formerly of Granada, now runs the biggest independent uh, company, independent producer, all three media were saying that VLV should be lobbying uh, the politicians and the manifestos at the next election and making this case for a big BBC for a licence fee to remain the same as it is and also pointing out that independent producers rely on the BBC for their business. The BBC licence fee isn't just out of the uh, the licence fees. It goes into commercial firms. It makes money uh, for Britain. It allows Britain to uh, sell its programmes all over the world. Also, in the um, session with uh, Sir Peter Bazalgette, how much the BBC contributes to just the arts and uh, getting those uh, uh, programmes out there. So I think this battle is going to be quite fierce. And uh, today we've heard the other side of the argument from uh, the people who want the BBC to be as big as it is. 
And we'll come to Morrison in a second, but you mentioned uh, Peter Basildier there of the Arts Council. He, he, he was going on about something he called Bragg's Lament, which, uh, which I guess was, was shorthand for people who complain about the lack of arts on mainstream TV. And he sort of said, well, it's irrelevant. You can get it all online uh, and, and elsewhere. But the audience here of the VOV members, they sort of uh, they, they hit back against that and said, well, hang on a minute. We're not all online. And you know, maybe we still want a ballet on BBC One or maybe BBC Two more realistically. That's right. And again, it was a, d- a good debate to be had because I think he was slightly on the back foot and uh, he was questioned very strongly uh, by, by Ray Snoddy o- on this Bragg's lament, uh, by which he meant that actually you don't see an awful lot of mainstream arts in primetime uh, on the big BBC channels. Now, uh, uh, the argument there is that everybody now has access to BBC4, uh, to digital television. Not everybody has the internet, but it's, it's growing uh, the number of people who do. So I think, again, this debate will run uh, and run. The Bragg's Lament is a phrase that I think will echo on, and I don't think the BBC makes as much of its um, arts programming as perhaps uh, it it ought. There is a lot more arts programming, uh, but it's in lots of different places. It's not all on one channel like Sky Arts, and therefore it perhaps doesn't seem as much as it is. Back to Morrison, he said, well, if the BBC is a big, fat, big supporter of the BBC, uh, but he said if, if the BBC isn't going to make uh, some of the licence fee money available to Channel 4 to support Indies that way, then the BBC should up the amount of content it makes available to Indies, up to possibly 75% of its programming. Yes, that again was quite controversial. He was saying that it ought to be bid for, i.e. it wouldn't be guaranteed, but that independents ought to be able to bid for 75%. Uh, and again, somebody uh, in the audience was saying, well, I don't want my licence fee money to go in profits to um, commercial uh, independent uh, producers. Uh, and the answer came back from Rain Hegarty, who is a former BBC One controller, but also um, uh, now running uh, an independent, that actually you get better value out of the licence fee in many cases by paying an independent producer which can be sharper uh, and actually passes some of the profit on to the BBC as well so again it's a really complicated argument and finally Torin uh, Tony Hall was here this morning and he said uh, he didn't have any clue before the uh, Scottish National Party announced it yesterday that they'd replace uh, the BBC with a, with a Scottish broadcaster if Scotland goes independent and he said they weren't going to research it because he didn't want to influence BBC News's impartiality but as a former BBC newsman what, what do you think what, what, what would they have made of that in, inside the BBC the idea that there will be no, no longer be a BBC north of the border if, if Scotland goes independent he didn't know they were going to say that um, yesterday, but it's obviously been an issue that's been on the BBC's mind. Uh, what do you do with an independent Scotland about, about the BBC uh, in, in Scotland? One of the worries for the BBC is how can it actually air the debate about this on its own airwaves when it is going to be party pre? Obviously, the BBC wants to keep broadcasting in Scotland. I think it's going to be a very, very sensitive issue. We saw when um, the Scottish commercial broadcaster STV stopped broadcasting the big ITV dramas. Uh, There was a huge outcry from viewers, but uh, if Scottish viewers uh, lost EastEnders, I think there'd be an even greater outcry. Okay, Torin Douglas, thanks very much. Well, that's enough VLV for now. Time now to turn to film and TV director Edgar Wright. The man behind Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and his latest release, The World's End, otherwise known as the Cornetto Trilogy, was in London to promote The World's End release on DVD. I sat down with him this week to talk films and a possible return to the small screen. But first, let's hear a bit from The World's End. Have you got any plans for dinner at all? Tonight, we will be partaking of a liquid repast as we wend our way up the Golden Mile. Commencing with an inaugural tankard in the first post, 
Then onto the old familiar, the famous cock, the cross hands, the good companions, the trusty servant, the two-headed dog, the mermaid, the beehive, the king's head, and the hole in the wall for a measure of the same, all before the last bittersweet pint in that most fateful terminus, the world's end. Leave a light on, good lady, for though we may return with a twinkle in our eyes, we will in truth be blind. Drunk. We, we wanted to make them thematically linked, aside from like fence jumping and, and ice cream, which is the more superficial connections. There are other like thematic connections that sort of like bring them together. Like they're all films with an individual versus a collective, and the collective like sort of represent different things in the different films. They're all about growing up, and they're all the sort of about the dangers of um, perpetual adolescence. And in this one particularly, the, the whole theme is about the dangers of nostalgia. And the script, this project, doesn't quite go back to your adolescence, but it goes back a long way. You wrote the sort of a first draft almost of this before Spaced. Or you're about to correct me, I think. Sort of. Right. It's kind of like partly right in that the script that I wrote when I was 21, it was called Crawl, was just about teenagers on a night out. So really only the first five minutes of the film represented that old screenplay. But I was thinking about it. After Hot Fuzz, we were doing the press tour, and I was thinking about that old script and the fact that I had never done anything with it and probably wouldn't do anything with it. And then it occurred to me, because I had done it myself, tried to recreate uh, like a, a, a night out that I had when I was a teenager, of how pathetic and how tragic it was for like sort of a grown man to try and recreate anything from his past. So I mentioned this to Simon and said, I think there's something in this. And he was aware that I'd written this other script, but he'd never read it. And I said, I think there's something more interesting in the idea of adults trying to recreate a teenage quest. And then the whole sci-fi element came out of the fact that I had just been back to my hometown shooting hot fuzz. And it's always a bittersweet experience going back to your hometown because it has obviously changed without you and there's nothing you can do to stop the march of time. That's the really nice thing about making these films is that uh, they're all genre films and yet there's lots of personal like history that go into them, even Hot Fuzz, which is, even though me and Simon have never been policemen, there's lots of other elements of that film that are like based on our upbringing, you know. So are you purely a film guy now? Are you ever going to go back to TV? Does it ever cross your mind? Uh, yeah, no, it has, actually. And in fact, I have an idea for something. that I've done the, the first kind of seeds of sort of developing as an idea. Tell us about this. Well, I don't want to go into too much detail because it's so sort of too early and stuff, but I, it's sort of like a comedy drama idea. It might be a way off because I'm making like another film right now. So if I write it, which I'd like to, it's probably a couple of years off. Would it be US or UK? The idea is US. In theory, it could work here, but I think it's a, it's a US idea. But I wouldn't rule out doing TV here either. If It's, it's all about the right idea and, and something that you're really passionate about, you know? And there's a lot of talk about you know, TV being the new film, although I think recently films become the new TV again. But where do you stand on that debate? I think what's happened is that TV has um, definitely claimed a lot of drama. And one of the frustrating things about films is that, like... Um, Whilst there are great kind of like spectacle movies and also great kind of like indie films, like there's a sort of middle ground of like sort of mid-budget dramas that are sort of like becoming rapidly extinct, which is a shame. But, you know, what kind of like TV does brilliantly that you can't do in film is just long-form arcs, you know. And something like Breaking Bad would be impossible to do in cinema because it's something you know, over, like, sort of arcs that take, you know, like, five years, you know. I think there's a place for both. I don't think, sort of, one will ever kill the other, or nor should they. They're two different mediums, really. 
Well, that greater freedom, is that part of the reason why you looked to do that comedy drama, or was it just an idea that you had that you thought, well, that's not, just not going to work on, on film? I don't think it's not that it wouldn't work, it's just that there might be more to it than, like, two hours of material. That's the thing, it's something that you think, well, this is an idea that can expand. You know, something like Gravity is the perfect example of, like, a great cinema feature because it's, like, a 90-minute long experience, an immersive experience, whereas something like Mad Men is something that can span a decade, you know. And you mentioned uh, Breaking Bad, and I know you've uh, praised uh, Toast of London on Twitter. I which... did, I really liked it. What else? Uh, well, tell us about that, but also what other, what other stuff on the small screen are you enjoying right now? Um, right now, I sort of, like, uh, I, I sort of, because I've been back and forth between the States and here, I've sort of been catching up with things in the UK and in fact the iPlayer and 4OD are incredibly helpful for that because I was just in LA for a couple of months so just when I got back the only things that I've seen was I saw Mark Gattis's Adventure in Space and Time which I thought was fantastic not just a great story about the origin of Doctor Who but like a great reminder of like the BBC TV centre is like at the epicentre of so much classic TV and I for one am sort of sad that like sort of people aren't using that anymore I mean, in terms of, like, sort of what I watch in the States that's over here, I really like Portlandia. I watch The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. There's also a show, which I don't know if they showed over here yet, by the comedian Nick Kroll, called Kroll Show, which is really funny. Same director as Portlandia and Tim and Eric. Uh, This guy, Jonathan Krizel, who's fantastic. All of his stuff has been really good. I really like that. I thought that was fantastic. So there's a lot of, like, um... But then uh, I, I saw Toast of London and I think I watched all of it on 4OD in the span of a couple of hours. <laughs> and I just watched the last episode last night with Michael Ball as a hitman, which was amazing. It's a very different environment now to the one when, when you did Space, I guess, 20 years ago. How do you think you'd have... Uh, would you have made not it now or would you have done it separately? Not quite that long ago. Was it not that long ago? <laughs> 15? I was 19 20 years ago. It wasn't quite that right, long Right, OK, forgive me, forgive me. <laughs> But it's still quite a different environment yeah. to when you made Space. Well, I guess so. That's the thing is that... I mean, the funny thing with Space that was like sort of... It seems crazy to think of it now, but that show never had a pilot. Like, we just made seven episodes. There was no pilot. We just made seven episodes in one go. And so it was re- remarkably unrestricted in terms of like... We had a budget and we had to stick to the budget. But in terms of content, I don't really remember ever having that many notes. It was very odd. And in the second series, even less notes, which I, I started to annoy me in a weird way, because it was like, the weird thing is that you don't really want like endless kind of notes and stuff. But on the flip side, it's also kind of weird going the other way, where like, you just get no notes at all. So, and, and that's what Kevin Spacey said in, in his McTaggart lecture. But get rid of the pilots. Just go straight to a full series. That was his big message for the, for the networks. No, I mean, it was, it was amazing. If anything, the, 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 the one thing that... Uh, like if it would have been possible with space but was impossible was that actually writing the second series uh, I was only a script editor on it Simon and Jess wrote the show but I was a script editor on it but writing the second series I think was a lot harder once there was reviews and, and fan sites and expectation of where to go that you kind of like wished that you could actually write it in a bubble and just write make seven episodes and then just make another seven episodes without kind of like hearing what anybody thought because then it would be something really pure but that's impossible but I do remember that it was harder for doing the second series 
with like sort of conflicting expectations of what it would turn into, you know. Now I'm not going to obsess with this 20 year thing because I guess it's in a few years time. But is there any chance? Will you ever do reunion? Is there any chance you'll get the old gang back together again? I don't know. I mean, to be honest, it's not my call really. It would be up to Simon and Jess. I always happily defer to them. <laughs> like, it's uh, like I didn't. I mean, for me at least, I can't speak for Simon and Jess, but like for me at least, there's something about that show being about young people and being about people in their mid 20s. When we made the first and second series, our lives were very similar to those characters. And then when things change, then you're almost like play-acting being young adults. And, and the, the series was conceived sort of as a um, response to kind of like youth-oriented dramas and um, comedies that were made by people in their 40s and 50s. So we didn't want to be like Jessica mentioned Game On, I think, didn't she at the time? Yeah, I think sort of like which that's yeah, I think she mentioned that at the time, and maybe that's because it didn't seem to reflect kind of our experience and stuff. So we didn't want to be hypocrites and then be like people in our thirties pretending to be in our twenties. And your next project is um, Ant Man, of course, which you've had in development for a long time. You you were kind of has it been sort of best part of ten years? You were kind of ahead of the curve, ahead of the superhero curve with this one. To be honest, like with that project. It's so ambitious in terms of special effects that, like, the fact that I've made three other movies, like, whilst I've been developing that, has just been good for me because I think sort of I just feel um, like I've just got more experience to sort of tackle something like that. So I've been happy to kind of like sort of um, work on other things leading up to it, which has been great. And how do the experience of Scott Pilgrim, for instance, and developing Ant Man compare with coming back here and doing uh, The World's End? Not that different, really. Like, sort of, what I mean, what's like been really nice and it might surprise some people, is that a lot of the people that I work with on Spaced continue to work on all of the movies. Like, Scott Pilgrim and World's End have the same production designer and editor from Space, same producer. You know, my brother has worked on all, all of the movies, you know, so I've, I've tried to be sort of very loyal in terms of there are people that I've worked with, like, from back when we did the TV show 20 years ago um, (laughs) (laughs) that I've continued to work with and that's sort of like important to me and it's nice to sort of like so to me in some ways there's always something new with each challenge but like if you keep the same family together it feels like sort of all part of the same experience which is great and you've been catching up with the iPlayer, so you must have seen the Doctor Who 50th. I have not. What? Like because I didn't want to watch it on my laptop I've got it on my Sky Plus at home and I was working on Saturday night so I couldn't watch it so I just thought I'd wait until I got back home to a bigger TV. I watched Peter Davidson's Five-ish Doctors, which I thought was really funny and really sweet. And I watched the Mark Gattis. I watched that. I saw that already. So no, I have not seen Day of the Doctor, which makes me a terrible Doctor Who fan. But it's a shame about TV Centre, as you said. That kind it of is, history it is. Gone and that kind of, what, what, what do you think we're going to miss about it? I don't know. It's a similar thing as happening in LA in terms of like, tax breaks and sort of those incentives are sort of moving films like around the country and even to like London like so you get a sort of strange experience where films that are set in Los Angeles might actually be shot in in the UK which doesn't make a lot of sense to me so I think in this I mean I, I think sort of it sort of seems silly to me and not to be kind of like anti-regional but like it's not un-PC to kind of have, like, a uh, cultural centre in London. I think it's sort of a shame not to have your, like, national news be out of London. I, I, I understand it's great to spread the kind of, like, the wealth around, but, like, it seems odd to me. OK. Edgar Wright, thank you very much. No disrespect to Salford. <laughs> 
That was Edgar Wright talking to me earlier this week in a rather flash hotel room in Soho. And you can see clips of that interview in video form at theguardian.com slash media. Well, I'm glad to say I'm joined on location at the VLV conference by Rebecca Nicholson. Rebecca, out of your TV lair this week. How's it feel? It, it feels okay. I'm a little bit wobbly, but I'll get used to it. We're in the, uh, there's a joke coming up, see if you can spot it. We're in the Royal Geological Society, so we should be talking about 30 Rock. Yay! I mean, that's, that's quite good. I thought we were in the Royal Geographical Society, which explains why I very nearly went to Kensington. Not the same place, it turns out. And explains why you wanted to talk around the world in 80 days. <laughs> <laughs> we can carry on going, going. What other geos are there? Uh, Right, anyway, we're not going to talk about that, but we are going to talk about a very important 50th anniversary show which went out on Saturday, I believe. Uh, I mean, you might not have heard of it, this small show called Doctor Who. Yes. (laughs) It was on on Saturday night. Now, I was actually in the TV lair at the time that it was on, helping a guy called Neil to live blog it. He runs a website in which he watches episodes of Doctor Who with his wife, who had never seen it before. His wife, Sue. Neil and Sue came into the office. And I watched it with them. I'm intrigued. And I'm not a huge Doctor Who fan. I watched, I'm a typical sort of dabbler. I watch the, um, the Christmas episodes and then the odd one when it comes back. But I've never watched it with someone who is so into it. And it was such a fascinating experience that I couldn't really keep my eye on what was... Apparently it was quite confusing anyway. So I didn't really know what was going on on the show. But it was so incredible to watch it with someone who cared so much about it and got quite emotional in parts and you know was actually nervous about it being on tv in case it wasn't up to scratch although he was pretty certain that it would be and yeah it was a really strange experience it was like a real life goggle box it was it was like a real life goggle box yeah we should have filmed it and And put it uh, stuck it on channel four you're away six part series 26 (laughs) viewers no more than that but not many more but uh, was it any good though what did neil and his wife think they enjoyed it they went straight off to watch it again at the hotel. <laughs> at the hotel? <laughs> the general impression that I got was that people who watched it on TV were slightly underwhelmed, whereas people who went to see it at the cinema with the big 3D effects were really thrilled by it. So I enjoyed it. It seemed good fun. It wasn't quite as spectacular as I was expecting, but then I'm not a huge fan. Apparently we're not allowed to call them Hoovians. I asked Neil and he got quite certain that that was not a thing. Got angry. You would not call football fans footballians, would you? <laughs> so, <laughs> I probably would, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think seeing it in cinema in 3D. I mean, I saw Nick Knowles' DIY SOS in the cinema and it was a lot better <laughs> than when I watched it at home on the I saw David BBC Attenborough's one. World of Plants in 3D and it was quite spectacular. Mm. So I can see that that would add to the effect. Good. 50 more years, do you reckon? I, think so. I don't see why not. It was great fun. And will you be live blogging the 100th, 100th, 100th anniversary edition? <laughs> right, next up. Next up, I thought we should talk about MasterChef, The Professionals. This is my favourite MasterChef. And I think it's partly because the people who take part in it are supposed to be professional cooks, as the name would suggest. That's what they do. And but. yet, they're, they're invariably <laughs> terrible. And some of them do the whole MasterChef journey where they learn how to be better at cooking and you can really see them taking on the chef's advice. But it's just there are some spectacular things. We're, we're still in the best bit, which is where you get a new batch of people at the start of the week and they have to do the skills test and then the invention test and show off what they can do. And someone this week made sausage three ways. <laughs> Sausage three ways. A fried sausage, (laughs) a sausage taken out of its skin and fried in a slightly flatter shape. (laughs) And then something else, basically, like maybe a boiled sausage. I don't know. It was sausage three ways. I mean, there are are not three ways to cook a sausage. (laughs) 
I'm tempted to say I thought that was a feature in more magazine. That would be, that would be poor taste. Oh, well, we were but, all uh, thinking it, but nobody Yeah, said sorry, it. right, yeah. Um, yeah, they're not very good, are they? Uh, I, I saw one where a pudding just went. I think he made chocolate jelly or something. It just went absolutely... Yeah, I saw that one. Disgusting. You know, pear-shaped. Well, it yeah. would have been better if it was pear-shaped. Well, I've learned Michelle Roux absolutely hates He's gorgeous. in a water bath, isn't he? Isn't he yeah. just those eyes? It is the eyes, isn't it? Is it is the eyes. And the soft hands. Twinkly eyes. And the way he pronounces delicious. He's a very gentle cook. <laughs> but he doesn't like water bath things, which are very popular. Water what? Water bath. Is that um, what birds have in the garden? Uh, it's where, so if you watch a lot of cooking shows, you'll see it quite often, but it's where they put something in a vacuum pack and then plop it into a warm water bath uh, for hours and right. it cooks it very slowly. But he doesn't like it. Michelle really thinks that it makes things um, sloppy. I did that at Champneys once. <laughs> Cost a fortune, but yeah, it was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Came out very smooth. Um, and hopefully get a voucher for that mess. <laughs> but yeah, no, it is good. It's gripping. I've never watched it before, but I, I stumbled across it by I think accident. It's, it's better than the, the normal MasterChef. I tend to switch it on after the uh, the bloke from the other MasterChef disappeared. I find it a lot more pleasant that way. He is now being introduced as simply a diner, which I love as a right. professional credential. He's found his level. Diner Greg Wallace. That's right. all he is now. <laughs> Master diner. <laughs> Not even that, just a <laughs> diner. <laughs> Right, more MasterChef, no doubt, in coming weeks. Uh, yes. But finally this week. Finally, well, I, this is on in a few weeks. Oh, yeah, it's I a think. preview. It's a preview. So I've, I've been on location all day today. I went to a screening of Fleming, which is a new Sky Atlantic show, all about the early years of Ian Fleming, uh, creator of James Bond. And it's a four-part series. Yes. They said at the Q&A that it was originally supposed to be a two-part series. Stars Lara Pulver who we know from Sherlock. The saucy Sherlock. The saucy episode, Sherlock. Yeah. And uh, which there was a joke about that. Not in the show, in the Q&A afterwards. And Dominic Cooper um, of Hollywood movie fame. And he yeah. plays Ian Fleming. It's really good fun. It took a few minutes for the tone to settle in because I think I was expecting quite a serious drama. And it's all, I mean, obviously it looks very Mad Men and The Hour. And Anna Chancellor is in this and she's also that in face. The Hour. So um, there's a bit of crossover there. But it's really good fun. It's quite... A romp. Almost. Yeah, it's a romp. It is very much a romp, actually. It, they've obviously taken into account that Fifty Shades of Grey has been quite popular. And there's a lot of tying up and slightly aggressive moves, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And I Which really, James Bond did. I really of. think it might be the first post Fifty Shades uh, TV show because it very much plays into that whole idea of stuff. Um, but yeah, Ian Fleming into that kind of thing, apparently. And so Dara Pulver, who becomes his wife. She's also into it, apparently. Well, uh, I can't speak about that, but my memory, <laughs> my memory of... Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. But what I've got to get over is, uh, you might not have seen it, but Jason Connery, Sean Connery's son, once played Ian Fleming in a thing called Goldmine, which was pretty rum. Oh, no, I never saw it. But this sounds a lot better. It's, it's just good fun. Sean Connery, to, Sean Connery to Jason Connery's Roger Moore. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's a really good disclaimer at the end of the show, which I hope they keep in, which says, it's based on true events loosely, but then a huge thing at the bottom saying, but we've added quite a lot of things for entertainment value. <laughs> so then they preview the next few episodes and it's Ian Fleming shooting at Nazis and things like that. So uh, I think they've added quite a lot for entertainment value, but very entertaining it is. And this is on Sky, Sky, Sky One, Sky Atlantic. In the next few weeks, I believe. Fantastic. Look forward to that. Rebecca Nicholson, see you in the lair next week. See you in the lair. Thanks. And that's it for this week, live from the VLV. Well, mostly. My thanks to all our guests, who are frankly too many to mention, and to you for listening. My name's John Plunkett, A media talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. 
Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.